0: Good evening. How are you all doing? Good. Okay, I have a lot prepared, so we'll go ahead and get started. Tonight we're going to begin the exposition of Revelation chapter 4. All right, but as we do so, we need to be very aware of several things. Uh, First, for starters, the fact is that we are entering into the third of three sections that the book of Revelation is divided into. Revelation, which is the unveiling of Christ, has a unique aspect of a divinely inspired outline, which is provided in chapter 1, after we read a vision of Jesus Christ that John saw. In verse 19, the Lord tells John how this book is organized. He said, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. The phrase, the Greek phrase, metatauta, is what that words, or what those words mean, after these things. So we're going to circle back to that, but section one, of course, is that first chapter, the vision John saw in chapter one, the things which he saw of Jesus Christ. The things which are refers to the second section of the book, that is chapters two and three, that is a a set of seven letters um, sent out, authored by Christ, penned by John, sent out to seven churches. And we have just about completed the study of those churches. I think next week, pastor will be wrapping up. But we have discovered over the last several weeks, those seven letters are edifying in many ways, both as an individual believer for your own personal faith, but also collectively, corporately as a body of believers in the church. But in addition to that, those letters seem to lay out what is the history of the church. If you are interested in church history and you study those letters carefully, and then you compare what we know of the spiritual conditions of, of the church as, the, as, the, as it progressed over the centuries. There's some fascinating comparisons in there. But now as we get into chapter 4, chapter 4 opens with that very same phrase, metatauta, after these things is what it means. So to get started in verse 1 when we read that, that should signify we are moving into this next section of the book. It's the third final and lengthiest section of revelation there's some elements though i think that would benefit some discussion before we go into this and uh, what i'm going to share with you is not free of controversy yet at the same time it's a very key perception that we need to test on our own and get comfortable with as we progress through this study and the concept i'm referring to is the the rapture of the church it's interesting that in Revelation, by the end of chapter 3, the church has been mentioned 19 times. However, after chapter 3, it does not appear again for most of the rest of the book. There's an allusion to the church at the end as the bride of Christ, but it's not a chronological type of remark. So the church is conspicuous in its absence from here on out. As the third section of the book unfolds, also we're going to discover, well, many things. One of those things is going to be a noticeable increase in the Jewishness of the book. And what makes that striking is if you have studied the rapture or Paul's epistles you know that Paul, he divided the the group he's addressing to in his letters into three groups. The Jews, the Gentile, and the church. And Paul argued extensively that if you are in the church you're neither Jew nor Gentile rather you're in the body of Christ. The elect body or the ecclesia is the Greek word. That's where we get the word church from, Ecclesia. It means called out ones. Does anybody know what we're called out of? Called out of what? Called out of the world. So chapters 2 and 3 are the things which are. And again, we just nearly completed that study. And now the Lord is going to be focusing through John on the things after these things. So after what things? After the church, right. So it should not surprise us that there are many clues, and that's what I'll call them for now, is clues that I believe chapter 4 marks the end of the church in Revelation. It's behind us. One of the first things that we discover in verse 1 of chapter 4 is a shift of scene. Where has John been since chapter 1? He's on the island, Patmos. He's experiencing this vision of Jesus Christ. Chapters 2 and 3, he's been receiving the seven letters that were to be sent to the seven churches. Now in verse 1, chapter 4, the scene is going to shift in spirit into heaven, through spirit into heaven. So John will be called up into heaven. And as he does so, this is going to take us on our part into some passages, some Old Testament passages, which are essential background for understanding chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation. So... What I hope is that these Wednesday night studies are a complement to your own understanding, your own study of Revelation. But if you want to study chapters 4 and 5, respectively, you want to be familiar with Ezekiel chapters 1 and 10, as well as Isaiah chapter 6 in the Old Testament. And that is because you see chapter 4 of Revelation has got to take us right to the throne of God, the throne room of heaven. And if you want to study the subject of the throne of God, you need to be familiar with Ezekiel chapters 1 and 10 as as well as Isaiah chapter 6. There are some other passages that we'll cover more of as a side note. But Ezekiel chapter 1 and 10 and then Isaiah 6. These are the previous occasions in scripture where the prophets were conspicuously ushered in before the throne of God itself. And we use that phrase throne of God very casually. I think... After this study, it should be regarded as far more remarkable of a thing when we talk about God's throne. I looked up many thrones in preparation just to get an idea of what what the greatest worldly thrones are in history and, 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 and that exist today. And there are some impressive stately grand thrones. But can you imagine what we'll see and what we'll experience in the throne room of heaven before the ruler of the universe? So that's what we'll get a taste of here in this passage. So, one of the things you need to have in your mind is this issue of the rapture of the church. If you're not familiar with it, the rapture is a controversial doctrine. I realize that, but again, it's important for us to have it in view, especially tonight. And if you've studied the rapture in the past, one of the distinctions you would make is through a list of all the mentions of Jesus' second coming in Scripture. If you take all of those occurrences and you and you break them up into broad terms you'll discover pretty clearly and quickly that there are two groups there's one group in which the lord comes secretly for his own to capture it away and there's another group where he comes to the earth with his own to take control so as you look at these passages you'll discover the two groups also are indicative of two very different events that are quite opposite in their nature two distinct occurrences and I can give you lots of scripture I have in my notes, but for the sake of time, I can't recite everything. I just have a quick summary of these differences in the two occurrences that you read in scripture. In one case, the earth is not judged. And in another case, the earth is judged. Again, these are the differences in the two occurrences of Jesus Christ's second coming. One case is described before the day of wrath, and the other day, in the other case, it concludes the day of wrath, or the day of the Lord. In one case... Christ comes for his saints. In the other case, he comes with his saints. In one case, he comes and only his own see him. In another case, every eye shall see him. In one case, the great tribulation begins. In another case, the millennial reign begins. So there's more to observe, but these are just distinctions I would commend to you in your own navigation of the rapture through scripture to be sensitive to. But as long as we're on the subject of it, we should be aware of where you would find uh, the rapture referred to in Scripture. So, the most popular passages regarded as the root verses for for the rapture of the church is 1 Corinthians 15, the last few verses, and 1 Thessalonians 4, the last few verses. I'll read these just to have them fresh in our mind for us. But if you want to take note of that, 1 Thessalonians 4, starting in 16... Paul writes, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with a voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. And then 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51 and 52 says, behold, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep. But we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. So, those are, again, the infamous New Testament passages referred to as the rapture of the church in order to substantiate the view. In the Old Testament, this is, you could consider it conjecture, because you don't explicitly find the Old Testament, and in the Old Testament... The rapture for very good reasons, and we'll talk about that. Uh, there's a couple of verses, though, I just want to bring up to share with you for your own interest if you are to undertake this, this idea of the rapture of the church in scripture. Isaiah, chapter 26 and verse 19. There's some uh, interesting and strange passage here. He says, Your dead shall live. Together with my dead body, they shall rise. Awake and sing, you who dwell in the dust. For your dew is like the dew of herbs. And the earth shall cast out the dead. It's a clear reference to the resurrection. But notice as he continues in verse 20, he starts with a strange phrase. It says, come my people, come my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation is past. For behold, the Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The Lord will also disclose her blood and no more cover her slain. So, come my people. John hears that same directive in verse 1, chapter 4. He's told to come. And then in Isaiah, he says to enter your chambers. That's kind of interesting. What's a, what chambers do you suppose those could be, maybe? Does anybody recall in, in John 14, in, in the final discourse of Christ, where Jesus said, in my Father's house are many mansions? If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to pre- prepare a place for you, and if I prepare a place, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. So, again, this is just interesting. I'm not trying to build a doctrinal case using Old Testament scripture for the rapture, but I wanted to bring it to your attention. Uh, one of the other things we'll see in Chapter Four is not only Jesus in heaven, but also the seven lampstands from Chapter One, if you recall. What were the seven lampstands identified as? Churches. Right, seven churches. Or the church. Now, they are called the seven spirits of God in this text, and that probably still sounds familiar, and it may make sense to you already, but we'll get to that. There's another compelling detail we'll encounter, and that is the famous 24 elders before the throne. Um, Much controversy and, and, and conversation, debate over that, and the identity of those. We'll uh, also discover Jesus Christ. He will change his posture in the upcoming chapters. Where is Jesus Christ today? Sitting at the right hand of God. That's right. Yep. Sitting at the right hand of God, interceding for us. Amen? Amen. That's right. And um, what we'll discover is that in chapter 4, he's no longer doing that. He's stepping forward to take control. In chapter 5, he picks up the seven-sealed scroll and all of that. And then chapter 6 on, we see God's wrath and his indignation. Now, when Isaiah said, hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation is past," I think uh, what he's suggesting is till all seven bowls of them are passed. Uh, but that's just my opinion on the scripture. There's other takes. For behold, the Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The book of Revelation in the next several chapters deals with a group called the earth dwellers. That's those who dwell upon the earth. But if you're sensitive to that phrase, you'll notice the other group in contrast is spoken about that. And that means if you're in Christ, you're not considered an earth dweller, correct? You're a pilgrim. Our our citizenship is elsewhere if we're in Christ. Last uh, Old Testament before we get into the scripture tonight, uh, you want to look at Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 3. This is, again, just interesting for an introduction to the idea of the rapture. Seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth who have upheld his justice. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. It may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Isn't that interesting? It is to me, anyway. Now, again, I'm not... I'm not trying to make a doctrinal case for you you using this. I recommend you navigate these concepts for yourself in Scripture. Uh, I came across the Old Testament passages here, which I hadn't heard associated with the rapture before, and I found it interesting, so I referenced. I took uh, many of them out, but these are what I would consider possible insights or clues, perhaps. Now, again, the, the rapture is not in the Old Testament Clearly, and that's for a very good reason because the rapture involves the church. Now, in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 3 through 7, Paul makes it quite clear that the concept of the church, the ecclesia, it was hidden from the Old Testament. It was his privilege to reveal it. That's a significant detail. Now, let's go ahead and take a look at the text. I think we prepared ourselves. For the final and the lengthiest section of Revelation, in chapter one, or excuse me, chapter four, verse one. Meta tauta, John says in the Greek. After these things I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you the things which must take place after this. So meta tauta, that's the code word, it actually occurs twice here. And verse 1, and you'll find that many students, scholars, and pastors, and theologians of the word would tend to view the rapture as being uh, signified here in chapter 4. John is in heaven now, and there's a, hand, a handful of other clues that, that seem to substantiate this viewpoint. And it is a, a viewpoint. It's one that I hold. It's one that I feel like I'm in good company Um, But what I recommend to you is that you be like the Bereans in the book of Acts in that they receive the word with all readiness and search the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. I implore you to do your own complete study on the rapture and pray about it, perhaps discuss it with other believers and elders, and then arrive at your own conclusion. All right, so uh, moving on. Now it says encounters a door standing open in heaven. This is the the fourth door that we read of in Revelation. The first one came from the letter of Philadelphia as the door of opportunity in chapter 3, verse 8. He also speaks of a door, uh, of knocking at a door and it opening in uh, in the letter to Laodicea in verse 20. So now we have the door being alluded to as opening into heaven itself. And Then John said, the first voice which he heard was like a trumpet speaking with me. Now, Revelation has a lot of trumpets. We've already heard a voice like a trumpet out of chapter 1. So don't get confused with these trumpets yet. The trumpet of God is what Paul talks about in 1 Thessalonians 4. Um, This says it's a voice like a trumpet... But you only hear or see the trumpet of God mentioned one other time in Scripture. That is all the way back in Exodus and 19 at Mount Sinai when the Ten Commandments were given. Those are the only two clear remarks of the trumpet of God. However, this trumpet, voiced like a trumpet, they are in heaven now. Perhaps maybe this is a trumpet like God or of God, perhaps. Another thing that we can keep in mind, and uh, because we are reading of, Heavenly scenes. This is the throne room of heaven. And there's a probably a more difficult challenge that comes with understanding this. You and I, we inherently tend to think of this world that we live in. The the building, the floors, the walls, the trees outside, and everything that exists, the makeup of our reality. We see all of that as the tangible real things in our life. And when it comes to church, and talking about spiritual things and Bible study, that can seem kind of obscure or out there or fuzzy. And uh, we tend to express it in different ways, but usually we regard where we are, this physical realm, as reality, and out there, the heavens or the spiritual realm, just out there. So what we need to contend with in our minds is that we generally have that backwards. First of all, if we just kind of touch base on our so-called physical reality. There's a piano on stage which appears to be solid. But if I insist that it's solid and Todd maintains that it is empty space, who would be correct? Well, I'd say Todd is more correct by a million to one, actually. Because if we examine a scale model of an atom, does everybody know what an atom is? An atom is the basic unit of matter. It's the makeup of literally our entire existence. It's not the smallest of molecules, but just give me an idea of how small they are. The human body is estimated to be made up of about 7 octillion atoms. So, if um, we look at one of those atoms, the part of the atom... That is empty space compared to the part that is solid is a million to one. The reason that our body feels solid and all matter feels solid is because of electrical forces and nuclear forces holding it together. If you're familiar with uh, Colossians 117, Paul says, in him all things exist. And I believe Christ actively imposes the forces of our universe to, by grace, to hold us all together. And at the moment. Of or the twinkling of an eye, or any moment, God could just let it all go at any moment. So another thing is that you and I tend to think we live and we exist in three dimensions. And uh, Einstein said it's actually four because we now deal with time as a fourth dimension. Particle physicists today would tell you that our universe actually exists in at least ten different dimensions. Four of them are measurable, length, width, and depth. That's space and time. But then six of these dimensions are actually curled, whatever that means, and they can only be experienced by indirect methods. So those are... It, that's, I don't know what any of that means, by the way. You just go to physics.org. <laughs> you can look it up. But um, the point is we need to be conscious and aware of the fact that we are in a unique temporary set of circumstances, and we think of that as physical reality, Everything we know and we experience physically has a law of diminishing returns. All right, It's all temporary. The eternal reality is out there in the spiritual realm and is far more real than you and I. So we need to sort of recognize what's going on here. John is not only propelled forward in time thousands of years, he's brought into the undefiled, uncorrupted eternal reality. And I don't know about you, but if you're familiar with Ezekiel and Isaiah and these heavenly scenes and the seraphim and how they're described, I have no expectation of heaven being in three dimensions. It could be 15, 20, or who knows? You and I don't have the capacity to deal with those ideas, unless you're really smart, like Todd or Steve, you're mathematically trained. Or or children also seem to have this weird, strange phenomena of being able to perceive the world beyond our normal understanding, at least for a while. As we mature, we're programmed into thinking the world and living in the world in three dimensions. It's difficult for us to consider or get our minds outside of that. But I just wanted to bring that up so we're calibrated to focusing on these heavenly scenes and how they're different from our physical reality. All right, moving on. Come up here, and I will show you the things which must take place after this. So the things we're going to see is after chapters 2 and 3. And again, what was the subject of chapter 2 and 3? Church. So by definition, what we're going to see here now is post-church. And it's going to be interesting, but I'm going to suggest that it's more academic than it is directly relevant to us. Because other than being familiar with these heavenly scenes, we don't want to be walking around in heaven like a country bumpkin, not knowing what is what. And you look at the seraphim or the cherubim and you go, oh, what is that? The, uh, the taste that we get of the throne room here is almost, you can consider it maybe like a small orientation of what's going to be going on in the throne room of heaven. But what is certainly most relevant to you and I out of Revelation is chapters two and three. Again, there's captivating details to explore and what's coming up next. But to understand how any of Revelation relates to you as a believer, you need to go and study chapters 2 and 3. All right? Okay. We're making good time, I think. We're, we're in, uh, okay, second gear. Verse 2. Immediately, he says, I was in the Spirit. He uses that phrase, in the Spirit, four times in Revelation. John does And behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. So a couple quick things here. How immediate is immediately? Right? Yep. Really quick. Paul would say it's in the twinkling of an eye. And uh, there's different takes on the literal amount of time it would take. But I think ultimately the point is that it's going to be really, really fast. I've heard speakers who say that, you know, if you don't believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, that's okay, we'll explain it to you on the way up. Um, I don't think we'll have any time to have a conversation. (laughs) Um, But in any case, he's in the Spirit, and he's now before the throne of God. And depending on your translation, I'm, I'm using New King James Version, but how you read this in English, the... The text may appear as if he is watching the throne as it's placed where it is, and that's not what's happening. The throne has always been setting there. He's seeing it there as it has been all along, and God has been on that throne for quite some time. Amen? And by the way, he's still on that throne. Is We get discouraged, and we assess the world around us because there's some sick, perverted things going on. There's Women becoming men, men becoming women. Millions of babies getting murdered in the womb. That's celebrated and defended. There's sick and twisted morals being imposed on our children. Remember as we get into these subjects that God is still on his throne. And nothing that has happened is outside of his reach. There isn't anything being done without his governing in the world. It's all in the end. Everything will bring glory to him. So... Like I said, this, is, this setting is believed to be the throne room of heaven. Chapters 4 and 5 seem to be preoccupied with our participation in the throne room of heaven. That's why I mentioned it as maybe a small orientation. You want to pay attention to the details of what's going on in here. The word throne occurs 45 times in Revelation. And outside of that, in the New Testament, you only read it 15 times. So, it gives you an idea of emphasis, if you will, on the throne in chapters 4 and 5. Now, there's debate on this. The throne we're seeing here is not Jesus' throne, I believe. There's other takes, so let me explain. I believe it's the Father's throne, and it's an important thought. So, if you want to hold your place and then turn to Psalm 110, or just make a note of it. Psalm 110, this is the psalm, if you think it's confusing, don't be surprised, because Jesus quoted this psalm to the Pharisees intentionally to confuse them. Psalm 110, verse 1 is all we're going to read. This is an interesting verse. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, till I make your enemies your footstool. Sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies your footstool. Who's talking to whom here? That's true. Yeah, the father speaking to the son. One of the things you'll discover if you do a study of the Trinity is that the Trinity is not just a New Testament idea, right? The Bible is sixty-six books written by forty authors over thousands of years that are an integrated whole message system. I heard this quote once, and if it hopefully you get it, the New Testament in the Old Test, the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed. And the Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. Did you get that? Amen. You'll discover that the Trinity is all throughout the Scripture and the Old Testament. Psalms 110 is also quoted in Hebrews. It's also alluded to in the letter to the Laodicea as well in verse 21 of chapter 3. To him who overcomes, I will sit with, sit with me on my throne, as I also came, overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So as we get in further into Revelation, there's got to be another throne that we talk about, and that's called the throne of David. That's an earthly throne. It has heavenly implications, but it's a very specific throne. And right now we are talking about the throne of the Father in heaven. Now, Luke referenced this throne when Stephen was martyred in Acts. In verse 55, he said, But he, speaking of C- Stephen, being full of, of the Holy Spirit gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. All right, so let's move on to verse three. John says, and he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardine or sardius stone. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. So first thing you notice, perhaps, is that what John sees is indistinct. He doesn't describe a a man or a form of a man sitting there. What he describes is bright, colored light. And the traditional way of trying to communicate that would have been through the use of precious stones or jewels. That's very common in the Bible. In fact, the Jasper Stone in Revelation 21, we see that come up again, is described as a clear stone. Now, one of the challenges, if you study the mysteries of Revelation, is trying to find the, 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 the satisfactory color of these. Because the stones and precious jewels over just history and different cultures have been used so inconsistently that it's, it's difficult to, to research that. But these stones and the names of them do occur two places in Scripture, however. The first is in the breastplate of the high priest, which is described in Exodus chapter 28. There's 12 stones in this breastplate. And the jasper was the last one on the high priest breastplate. So the word comes up again, or the stone, jasper, again, like I mentioned, Revelation 21. It's described as the walls in the new city, the new Jerusalem. And um, so we'll deal, deal with it again there. Jasper is widely regarded today as a diamond because of its uh, description as a clear stone in Revelation 21. Although, if you just look up Jasper's stone, there's a lot of multicolored reddish-purple stone, so I'm sure it comes in a, uh, a variety of forms. Now, this breastplate of the high priest, the 12 stones, what do you think they represented? 12 tribes of Israel, right. So each stone was correlated to one of those 12 tribes. The jasper was the last stone. What would that have, what tribe was the last one? Eh? Benjamin. Benjamin, the name, means son of my right hand. So it's interesting that the jasper stone here, again, is going to appear in the wall of the New Jerusalem and also as the first stone of the foundation Then you had this sardine stone, or the sardius stone, maybe in your Bible. And that was the first stone on the uh, high priest breastplate. And what was the first tribe? I'm looking at Lori. (laughs) Reuben. Reuben uh, was the firstborn of Jacob. Now, the name Reuben means behold a son. So Jesus, behold a son... He is, of course, the firstborn of the dead. He is also the son of my right hand. So do you see how these details, all of these things point to Jesus Christ. In Revelation 21, the sardine stone is the sixth stone of the foundation of the new city, New Jerusalem. So the color is mostly accepted as a fiery red for the sardine. That also seems to work in terms of it referring possibly to the blood of Christ. I've, I've heard a case made that from the names of these stones and their colors, that this is a, uh, a picture of the throne of Jesus. I don't tend to lean that way. As I said, I think this is. Uh, you can build a case for this being the throne uh, of God the Father. Now, the rainbow here, uh, in the Greek, the word that's used is um, iris, which could mean kind of, that means like a halo, just to give you an idea of how it looks. In the case of, uh, but, well, it says in this case it's likened to an emerald, and we think of an emerald as a green color. Uh, I wouldn't quarrel with that, although emeralds do come in a variety of colors, I'm sure you're aware. So we see the emerald and the sapphire frequently used in describing the throne of God from the other glimpses that we get in the scripture, and I think. I've mentioned this before in in one of the other um, lessons, that your best tool in studying Revelation and unraveling these mysteries is a concordance. So some of these meanings are just clearly explained in the text itself through Revelation. Um, That's helpful. But if you take a concordance and use, use it to look up any word or phrase... And where those words or phrases are also found in Scripture, you'll discover it's kind of like a treasure hunt, which you'll be surprised how much you can learn just from that. But I believe in order to study Revelation properly, it will take you into most of, if not all, of the rest of Scripture. So. Let's move on. Verse 4 now. Okay, we're almost out of time. I was... Yep. I, I, I want to get through this, or I'll have to skip something. All right, around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the, 20, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had on their heads um, gold crowns, crowns of gold on their heads. Now this is, again, one of the major baits, debates from Revelation, is who are these 24 elders? So the word elder, again, if we use the same technique I'm talking about, we just look it up in a concordance, the word elder is in the, in the New Testament used to describe the highest-ranking church officials. Titus lays out elder qualifications, starting in um, verse 5 of chapter 1. And then the elders, basically, when assembled, represent the whole church. Acts 15, you have the elders assembled to entertain a debate about what a Gentile has to do in order to be saved. In Acts 20, you have Paul bidding his farewell to the Ephesian elders and then 1 Peter 5.5, 5, I'll read that because it gives us some other insight. 1 Peter 5.5 5 says, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. So the whole idea of Christian service unto the coming of the Lord under the, in, in the function uh, or in the form of a church is uh, biblically biblically prescribed to be overseen by elders. And the word, the Greek word for elder is presbyteros. And that is where we get the word uh, Presbyterian from. So, if you know any Presbyterians, you can tell them that Revelation says there's only 24 of them getting into heaven. (laughs) That's the old joke. It's an easy way to remember where that... Word comes from, where we get it in the Greek and our term for it. All right, so the elders, let me kind of skip around here. They have on their head crowns of gold. And the crowns in the language is not the type of crown described as a crown for a ruler. It's a crown for a recipient, a reward crown. The Greek word is Stephanos. It's a victor's crown. You may be familiar with that idea. Paul uses this symbology in in a lot of his letters. The victor's crown. And there's five crowns specifically enumerated in Scripture. We read of some in the chapters 2 and 3, the seven letters of the seven churches. But I have notes on crowns if you're interested in in, uh, understanding what the Bible says. There's probably more than five. Uh, there's five specifically enumerated that I can name and, and tell you what they're about. But we want to get some crowns. You don't want to be in the throne room of heaven not having a crown to throw down when it's time. So we'll, get, we'll cover that in chapter 5. Crowns. All right. Time to wrap up. Sorry. Um, Yeah, I I realize there's a lot of ideas and a lot of words here. And, uh, wow, yeah, you know, I I prepared way too much. I wanted to give you more about the elders. Uh, I believe these elders, the 24 elders in their whole, represent the church being in heaven. There's debate on that. There's people who believe, oh, it's the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 uh, disciples. That's possible, but you don't hear John say anything, oh, there I am. Uh, And so... Also, if you understand numbers in the Bible and their significance, 12 and 12 don't, you know, make 24 in the symbolic use of their, in the Levitical sense of what they mean. So I believe that the 24 elders are the uh, the church uh, being represented in heaven, and again, uh, that is debated. So let me uh, just close really quick, again, I, I know I've given you many words, but uh, the The fact is, in these heavenly scenes, what will happen is we, being in the presence of God, will appreciate ourselves more and more as the ages come. He will still be revealing himself to us in his mercy for millions and trillions of years. We will never tire looking at him as the one who is seated upon the throne and and never tire of casting our crowns down to him because um, he will always for eternity be infinite, and we will be finite. And every time we look at him, we'll see something like we hadn't seen before. And now, none of these details matter, again, if you are not a born-again believer, if you don't have a relationship with Christ, the one true and living God. He created the universe, he sustains it, holds it together, and he suffered and died on a cross in our place because we ruined our lives with sin. He suffered, died, and then came back to life after three days He took power over death and sin and the grave. Christ made a provision for eternal life to us, for us to be with him in heaven. If we yield our hearts, our lives, affection and devotion and faith, the Bible says he is faithful to forgive and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Today is the day of salvation, so I I pray you settle that tonight if you haven't. Amen. Amen.